You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is great to be back. It's Tuesday, August the 1st. My thanks to Charlotte and Tom for holding the fort while I've been away with the family on holiday. Corfu was lovely, gorgeous, hot, uh, glorious Goodwood. I thought this week would be anything but, and indeed there's some wild and woolly stuff in the forecast. But at the moment, as I speak to you now, looking over the paddock, the sun is trying to break through the, the cloud. A little bit of, of weak sunshine. But before we go any further as we launch headlong into this week, we need to know what's going to happen because it's a, an entirely unpredictable weather picture. And as such, Ed Arkell, the clerk of the course here, uh, Goodwood is, is with me now. Ed, what, what can we expect? Yeah, at the moment we're good to soft, soft in places. Um, we were dry overnight. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're not back to good to soft at some point today. Uh, then rain tonight, sort of 8 to 12 millimetres probably. Uh, clearing by early hours of the morning, but it'll be a damp, misty start, uh, giving way to some potentially quite um, heavy showers later on in the day. So tomorrow looks like the worst day, doesn't it, weather-wise? Yeah, it does at the moment. Um, Thursday, Friday, both looking predominantly dry with some sunny spells, although there are scattered showers about, and there's beginning to be a bit of a signal, unfortunately, that Saturday could be a bit wet as well, but we'll uh, just see how that plays out. Any worries about continuation of racing through the week? Uh, not at the moment, no. OK, that's, that's very encouraging. Does that, does that suggest that the track is taking what has been a lot of rain in the last couple of weeks well? Yeah, it's taking it brilliantly. It's growing really well as well, which helps the, with the grass taking a bit up. Um, it seems to have handled it brilliantly. And to be fair, it's doing everything it can to help us, which is you couldn't ask for more, really. Obviously, one aspect of this race course that's always important, particularly this fixture, is the draw, particularly, say, over seven furlongs, for example. Are you anticipating jockeys migrating towards the stand side on the round course? Um, certainly not today. We'll see what happens tomorrow. You know, if we do get an awful lot of rain, then they could do. Um, with the cutaway in, it's not quite as far to come across as it would be if uh, we were on the inner line, which we will, will be later in the week. Okay. How difficult has the last couple of weeks been for you? Uh, fine, actually, because we haven't been watering. <laughs> yes, so that's you haven't a, had to water. We haven't had to water. That. You know, it's really taken the pressure off the grounds team, which has been great. <laughs> that said, we had somebody here until half eleven midnight cutting it last night because we haven't been able to get on it because it's been so wet. Um, so that's been great, but I think we might start to earn our corn this week. All right, thanks so much. Thanks. All right, well, that was Ed Arkell. This is the Racing Post's Jonathan Harding, who joins me here at Goodwood. And it is just threatening to drizzle, Jonathan. I mean, Ed's saying it's going to be dry today, but it's dry by the skin of its teeth. Yeah, it's just started to become a little bit overcast here. Um, starting to spit a bit. I can. I don't know how bad they give it for the rest of the week, but today it looks as though it might be slightly drier. Oh, but from a punting perspective, we know that you're not going to be backing fast ground horses this week. Not from now, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or, or, or Saturday. In whose favour is it most or least, do you think? How does it make you change the way you play? I think Courage Monami today is the one where the, the ground is a bit of a question mark, of course. Um, the Gosdens are saying, and quite rightly, that there's nothing that suggests that he wouldn't handle a bit more given the ground. Um, obviously, Ascot was far faster surface. Um, so we have to take their word for that but it is still a little bit of an unknown against some fairly proven performers I think 
the flip side of that is Emily Dickinson's obviously one that would mm. appreciate a fair bit of cut. You mentioned Emily Dickinson, the Mount of Ryan Moore. Obviously, her Curra Cup victory on soft ground brings her right into things in today's Group 1. I mean, to what extent do you think the Moore factor was instrumental in Sir Michael Stout not running Nostrum in the Sussex Stakes against Paddington and, and going for the Thoroughbred Stakes instead, the availability of the rider? I think it would have certainly been a consideration among many. Um, Disappointing, isn't it? It is. The, I quite like the line that if it was good enough for Baid, I understand it's mm. a it's a three-year-old. I understand why. Well, we all know if Baid had run in the Sussex Stakes well, at the equivalent the, time, he'd have won that as well. You know, I mean, as, as, so Michael Stout didn't get to where he's got today by being by by being that conservative. Yes, famed for his patience, but he's a man who who's played some big shots in his time. I can see it, and as a as a neutral, of course, we'd love to see him have a crack in the Sussex because we want to measure up these three-year-olds against the older horses. I think it's a, probably a head decision with that one because there's always time for him to develop and to grow into a horse that is capable of running in those races but I, I, I'm certainly on your side where I'd have liked to have seen how he measures up now of course it isn't just a one horse race in the Sussex Stakes tomorrow Wednesday the the week's feature race it's not just about Paddington and Spirals in there as well and there's also an intriguing challenger from France Facteur Cheval trained by Jérôme Renier. I spoke to Renier, who's had success with Scaletti and others in this country a little earlier on, and I, I began by asking him why he was coming uh, to Goodwood for the Sussex Stakes. Well, I, just, uh, I think it's uh, just a normal uh, pathway. Um, we don't have many options because he's a gelding. He uh, is not eligible for the Pijak de Mawa. So he has had a break, um, uh, he's coming fresh and happy and he looks good and we're very happy with him so I uh, thought it was uh, great to, to give it a go for a, a very interesting challenge. Uh, it's like uh, one month before the Prix du Moulin de Longchamp where he could run and uh, maybe after that he could uh, give it a go in the, in the Queen Elizabeth in October so maybe he's got like uh, two more runs before the end of the year after this run and uh, we hope he's uh, up to that standard and he will be competitive um, only six runners and um, we are only challengers and we, we will be probably waiting at the back and uh, hope for the best to to have enough pace to come from behind and he's a horse who who really has thrived on on racing it's hard to believe he only made his debut uh, in April last year as a three-year-old and you managed to pump seven runs into him by the end of the year on all types of ground. He's got form on, on very soft ground. To what extent do you think all the rain we're going to have at Goodwood is going to be a big advantage to him? Yeah, that's definitely a good thing. He won his group race uh, at the end of the year in St. Cloud, uh, beating uh, Tribalist, uh, who is unbeaten this year as a four-year-old. Um, he keeps improving mentally and physically uh, over the year and uh, I think the, be the better uh, as yet to come and uh, with him and uh, uh, he's a lovely horse, he never lets you down, he's like uh, giving his best all the time and uh, no, we're really looking forward to seeing him to tomorrow. And you know what it takes to, to have horses be competitive at a, at a very high level in the, in the UK and around the world as well. We've seen what, what horses like Scaletti have done for you and, and others. If you were to, to, to rank this horse, Factor Cheval, amongst the, amongst the talent that you've had through your yard, where would you, where would you put him as things stand? No, he's obviously one of the best I've ever trained. Uh, Scaletti is a living legend, obviously. He's eight years old. He was uh, third in the group one the other day, uh, once again in Munich. He's uh, the winner of 12 group races. And I'm just hoping Factor will be able to do as well as uh, he did. But 
Uh, at, at his age, Scaletti uh, was only a listed race winner as a, as a four-year-old. Uh, so he's, he was um, very immature and, and late. Uh, so Factor Cheval is bit, uh, has got a, a, a better race record already than Scaletti at the same age. So that, that's why I was saying the, the best uh, has yet to come with, uh, with him. Uh, Jérôme Renier there, the trainer of Factor Cheval, who runs in tomorrow's Sussex States, which could be blighted by you know, the heavens opening. Is that going to is that going to heavily impinge on on Paddington's chances? Do you think, Jonathan? It's difficult to say. I mean, I, I believe he's by far the best horse in the race on what we've seen. He's clearly, to my mind, the best three-year-old in training at the moment, having beaten a very good yardstick in Emily Upjohn. Okay, the King George didn't quite go to plan for her, but he's he's got the form in the book. It's just whether that blunts his speed, dropping back to a mile. I'm not. I think he could just be too good, irrespective. But it would certainly be something you'd be considering in terms of looking for value elsewhere. Yeah, I wondered whether whether tomorrow might be in Spiral's day. She's got form with Cut. She was very good when she won the Phillies Mile with with plenty of dig in the ground. And I know she's not the quickest away from the stalls, and she might be best off a long, long break. But she has been freshened up since Ascot. She's a very big prize, four or five to one for a, a filly of her talent. Yeah, and I think Paddington, if Paddington's odds on, that's far too short given all the variables we've just discussed. And of the rest, she seems the most likely, arguably the only one really on proven form that has the potential to, or the capabilities to run Paddington close, if not beat him. I think they're the two, aren't they, in that race in what's a, a, a disappointingly small field, actually. Incidentally, Aidan O'Brien uh, yesterday debriefing after the King George was speculating that perhaps air travel wasn't to August Rodin's liking after his dismal display at Ascot on, on Saturday. said that the time he'd won the derby, he'd come over by boat and the guineas and then the King George, he'd flown both times. I mean, that's going to be tested if they want to go international with him at the end of the year. And maybe that'll be preying on their mind if you're thinking about Breeders' Cups and Japan Cups and so forth. But just want to get him back on a race course to begin with. No, absolutely right. And that was the one thing. The King George threw up such a brilliant story in Huckham and his comeback and arguably Owen Burroughs' comeback as well. And the only real sort of blight on it is that we didn't, we clearly didn't see August Rodin's true mm. running. They don't need to do a great deal with him. He's a dual derby winner. But in terms of campaigning him, you want to see him have a, have a chance to get that reputation back. And like you say, the international targets might be off the agenda, so it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see where they go with them next. Now, yesterday on the podcast, Dave Yates and Charlotte Greenway were talking about the likely whip ban that was coming Jim Crowley's way for his ride on Huckham, whether it was eight strikes or nine strikes, whatever. He's going to get a ban of some sort. You heard Dave talk about Angus Gold, the racing manager to Shadwell's reaction to it, which was much like many people's reaction to these whip bans now when there's been a a big race yesterday there was another interesting move from the BHA in this never-ending story of twists and turns regarding the whip regulations Jonathan what happened yeah so with the with this whip review and the new whip penalties you never quite know which way is up they seem to be adjusting them all the time Um, but the latest amendment and I believe the fifth amendment since the rules were (laughs) actually brought in a number of penalty changes it's a, a fairly long email that people received but Essentially, they are reducing the penalty for those who go one strike over relative to how many rides it has been since their last whip offence. So a reduction of up to 50% for one strike over if riders riders have had 200 rides without incident on the flat, 150 over jumps since their last breach. 
They've also uh, removed double penalties in Class 2 races below 150,000. I know this was a, a point of contention whereby the better the race, the bigger the penalty you received. Uh, they've now slightly softened that within Class 2 races worth less than 150,000. Unless, of course, and here's another caveat, it's a race restricted to amateur, apprentice or conditional riders. Uh, it's, it's remarkable now how, how little of the rules bear any resemblance to what was originally planned at the end of the exhaustive process of 18 months on the, on the whip steering group, of which I was a member, I have to say that every time. Um, anyway, there you go. Uh, bits keep being chipped off the block uh, and it, it now seems to be regulation by by consensus rather than by clear authority yeah it's it's such a difficult one and it depends how charitably you want to look at it so you might look at it as the bha listening in dialogue with the pga trying to come up with a sensible approach or you might look at it as a regulator that's come so far it's unwilling to concede as much ground as it perhaps ought to and is just adjusting and adjusting and adjusting i would like to see a bit more certainty and I'm sure the jockeys would like to see a little bit more certainty too but from a from their perspective from a weighing room perspective this is a step in the right direction in the sense that it's softening certainly with totting up bands softening as well but the point remains that many of them would say well it's a step in the right direction but we shouldn't have been on this road to begin with well the thing about the unpredictable weather here at Goodwood and the likelihood of, of soft ground is it brings the chaos factor into play there'll be a lot of people who's chances aren't particularly obvious on the form book who think well hang on a minute i've got a shot of uh, of winning a pattern race here one of those might be hugo palmer who's got a, a runner in the vintage stakes today in soldiers gold and when the deluge really comes tomorrow hackman in the molcom stakes that's been the plan since earlier in the season when the horse won at chester uh, and hugo joins me now i guess you're one of those people hugo who doesn't mind if it's uh, if it's all a little uncertain no that's certainly true um I, as the rain's fallen, I, I've been—I felt more confident about our chances, and certainly with Soldiers Gold today, that's rather why I've rolled the dice um, uh, and, and declared in the vintage rather than, than, than the nursery on on Thursday. I just thought um, on on ground that might remove the um, the chances of um, uh, of some of the you know more fancied horses. It might level the playing field, or rather, tilt it in our way a little bit, perhaps. And tomorrow, um, you say Hackman in the in the Molcom, that had been the plan for for a little while. I know you always feel that he's a, a two year old through and through, a now horse. You need to squeeze the lemon a bit. Yeah, look, he's 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 not the biggest. Although, funnily enough, he has continued to grow and develop all year. And there'll certainly have been smaller sprinters. I remember what was that marvelous horse Richard Hughes rode. Was it Soul Power? I think he'd probably be smaller than Hackman. Um, but. He's um, he's a very fast horse. James Doyle, who's ridden him twice to be listed, plays both in the um, Dragon and in the National at um, <coughs> at Sandown. Commented both times that that stiff five furlongs seemed like a very long way on uh, on Hackman, and so the, the 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 very sharp downhill five furlongs of of the Molcom has been the plan for a long time. Um, I dare say we would have run on whatever grounds, but. Um, I think as the season's gone on, a preference for the soft ground that he bolted up on in Chester has become evidence. So I'm very glad that the rain has come and looks like likely to continue coming. Uh, Hugo, you're into your second season now, uh, training at Manor House for, for Michael Owen. Um, had a chance to, to bed in and, and assess the future. How, how do you see the plan unfolding? Well, I have to say, Mike, Mike and I are both really, really happy with, with how things are going. 
Um, obviously, last year coming in just at the start of the season was 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 never going to be easy. But we won um, well over a million pounds in prize money, and um, we won group races, we won listed races. Both horses that I brought from Newmarket won won good races, and and as did as did horses that I that I that I met in Cheshire. So that was. That was very exciting, um, and, and but to be honest, when the year came to an end, it, it was just a relief to have survived. Um, this year obviously started brilliantly for us with uh, with Flaming Rib winning a, um, a hugely valuable race in, in Qatar, uh, and he may well run at Chester uh, this weekend, and that might be his last run of the year. We might target that race in Qatar again. But I, I say I'm just I'm loving it. Um, you know, if I'd had. I'd had a pound for every time I was told, you know, we said Rome wasn't built in a day, but we are, I feel, really beginning to build it. We've got a really exciting and promising order book for the yearling sales that uh, starting in Deauville in three weeks' time, Michael and I will both be there. And um, really looking forward to, to, to building on our team. We've got some, some new owners um, and lots of the old ones seem to be, seem to be really enjoying it and, and uh, uh, sort of loving the journey with us. And I gather there's a, an exciting new acquisition to the yard. There is very exciting. I had a, a telephone call um, not not ten minutes ago to, to tell me that um, Lastronome, uh, a girl in Santa Frankel who's been uh, racing with Francis Graffard in France, that um, the owners are keen to to have a change of scenery, move him out of a, um, a training centre. Um, obviously, Francis is in Chantilly, um, and and we we train on our own farm at, at Manor House and. They want to. They want to change, change the scenery and also feel that the, the pace of English races might suit him rather better than, than French racing. So uh, that's the hope, and I gather he'll be arriving towards the end of this week, which is, is very exciting. Go all the way back eighteen months and download podcast episode three hundred and ninety-nine. Headlined, Jonathan Harding. Can you read the headline there? Is jump racing returning to Windsor? Well, yeah, yesterday. Uh, 400 episodes later, we we finally got an answer. You called it. We, I'd like to think we broke this story 18 months ago. Jump racing is returning to Windsor, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. So the track stopped jump racing regularly in 1998, and it's coming back now. It's going to return for the 2024-2025 season with a first fixture on December 15th. It's just going to be a small number of fixtures to begin with, and it's worth noting that this won't be a net increase for... Windsor's fixtures this will be some flat cards that are converted but it's great news to have another jump track in that area and particularly with I think kind of looking ahead with the winter million at Lingfield was obviously introduced and has had its issues with the ground you could see it being run at Windsor as a contingency if not as part of a a wider, perhaps even a festival in the region. Who knows? The opportunities are endless. But there this, is this was the other point. This was the other thing that was mooted. If you go back to episode three hundred and ninety-nine, wasn't it the Windsor Ascot East Berkshire Festival sometime around Christmas time? It's going to need a bit of branding work from there. But I think it's certainly look. It, it's nice to see a track come into being rather than the other way around. So it's promising, anyway. Everyone likes a festival. Does it? Does it presage the end of jumping at Lingfield? Do you think? Should that be the answer to the? I don't know. I think Lingfield struggles certainly with certainly in the jump season. It's had its issues out of its own control. Um, obviously, the flat seems to be its priority, but it's pumped all this money into the winter yeah. million. And I mean, let, let's be honest. It doesn't. I mean, Art get a lot of brickbats chucked at them quite often, quite unfairly. And revivification, revivification of, of jumping, easy for you to say at Windsor, is clearly a good thing. But 
that you know any business is not going to start putting more and more racing on that is going to be loss making it has to be it has to make some money yeah so it can't have loss making jumping at Lingfield and loss making jumping at Windsor with small fields and heavy ground and abandonments if there hasn't if there isn't a plan to make this financially viable no I think you're right and and whether there is this idea of perhaps a coordinated approach in the region that it certainly hasn't been released but it's been mooted hasn't it and well uh, it's been it's been the gossip for a while hasn't yeah. it yeah and ask and ask at Windsor mashup, and you can see the value of it. You know, we're sat here at Goodwood. You, people love a festival. People love joining these things together logically and kind of bouncing between the different places. And uh, well, they might perhaps this week's going to be fairly wet, but it might be fairly wet if we had a, a festival at Windsor and Lingfield and Ascot at that time of the year. But I, I can see the logic. Goodwood and Fontwell, any any takers? Yeah, why not? You know, it does. <laughs> why can't we attach a smaller track to the bigger one and get a few? Uh, few more people through the door i don't know we're, we're brainstorming at this point but broadly i think good news that we've got jumping back at windsor and nicky henderson's happy anyway yeah well if nicky henderson's happy we should all be happy willie mullins was happy yesterday he was amongst the winners at galway first day of their festival and as i sit here uh, it would be very remiss of me not to give galway play every day this week that's what we're going to do uh, come in now uh, jane mangan uh, how is galway Galway is nice and calm the calm before the storm shall we say I think around 15,000 people came to the track yesterday it was rain it was sodden the ground was soft nearly even heavy on the on the flat track but that didn't dampen the spirits people planned their summer around Galway they've turned up and I'm sure that'll be setting the tone for the rest of the week Alright did they enjoy anything particularly noteworthy yesterday I did catch something about a descendant of Annie Power winning a hurdle race well, they, they enjoyed the first four winners being first four favourites. They all went in and that gave the, the punters a few quid. Um, and the most decisive of those wins was probably mystical power, as you say, the Galileo, a gelded son of Annie Power, making it two from two. He was in and of a hurdle against winners who had hurt experience. It was his hurdle debut. And I'll be honest, for the first mile and a half, I didn't think it would be a winning one. But he ran away with his jockey Mark Walsh into the dip, something you'd rarely see at Galway. And he actually ran out quite a decisive winner. Uh, Joseph O'Brien won the maiden with mythology um, and the premier handicap. This again could set the tone for the week ahead. Emmett Mullins, target trainer. We know that the Mee family love this place. Teed up. Could he be better named? Probably not. He went off favourite under Ray Barron. He won the Connacht Hotel Premier Handicap. Over 110 grand of the purse. And uh, while HMS Seahorse, Shajak, and the very man flashed home, uh, Teed up was well and gone. Uh, what can we look forward to today, Jane? Today is a little bit more competitive in terms of flat racing, but we open, I think, with two possible Willie Mullins winners. Absurd. It was placed at Royal Ascot for Willie Mullins, the son of Fastnet Rock. He's going to be short order in the novice hurdle. Willie represented with three runners in that. Paul Townend's choice is absurd. Uh, the second race is a beginner's chase. Usually a beginner's chase at this time of year doesn't really get your heart pumping, but Sharjah, the six-time grade one winner, the ten-time winner, the horse that was once raised 164 over hurdles, goes over fences for the first time at the age of 10. Of course, he won the 2018 Galway Hurdles, four Maston Hurdles to his name. Beginner's chase, let's see what he can do in the 540. The Phillies maiden has thrown up some good Phillies down through the years. Legatissimo for David Watchman, uh, Tarfasha, Hermosa, and most recently last year, Tahira. Well, a month ago, it's usually the talk in Ireland. Dermot Wells got something for Galway. Well, it turns out it might, might be Tanola. 
in the 610, the Phillies maiden, Tanola has a Moigler entry and she's well touted for the Aga Khan, Dermot Weld and Chris Hayes. And that's before we get to the feature race, the Colm Quinn BMW Mile, where Aidan McGuinness saddles four runners. Salton Stahl, twice the winner of the race, is your top weight. But I think something like Alandia number 13 for Tom Gibley or maybe Cordor for Messrs Weld and Hayes again could upset the apple cart there. Jane, thanks so much. Pleasure. All right, it is Tuesday, and whilst I'm here at Glorious Goodwood, we also, of course, go around the bloodstock world and every week with our friends, uh, Weatherbees. And Weatherbees are and have been busy researching and editing the pedigrees for all the sales in the coming weeks and months in Britain and Ireland. And it gives me a, a very good opportunity to check in with, with Chris Wright, the man who has built up Stratford Place Stud over the last, well, I think it's got to be pretty well over four decades now. Chris selling five yearly... <laughs> It's got to be mid eighties, I would say, mid eighties, nineties, noughties. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's probably just now forty years old. Wow. Wow. And and with with five yearlings going to the Goss Premier Sale at Doncaster next month, Chris. I mean, are you still are you still as up for it and as enthusiastic about all the parts of the industry as you were then? Well, I guess so. I mean, we you know. There's nothing like having a, a winner. There's nothing like having a good winner, and there's certainly nothing like having a really good homebred winner. So that's what we all aspire to. But of course, the, the economics are difficult, and we have to try and make it work. And we are we are breeding and racing a few more in France now than we would have done, and uh, the dynamics change as a result of that. But yes, I mean, if, I may not be at uh, La Teste sur Bouche when we when we have a listed winner as we did a couple of weeks ago but it's just as much fun watching it on tv and and knowing that the end results are going to be the same so yes it's it's tough but we keep on where where i admire you relative to quite a lot of people who've made made a lot of money and then and then put a lot of it into the sport is that you got into actually owning and breeding racehorses at the same time as you were in your most sort of buccaneering phase of your uh, uh, of your business career, really, founding and running Chrysalis Records and selling to EMI, all that incredibly intense period through the through the 1980s, and you were getting stuck into breeding racehorses at the same time. Um, how 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 did you combine those two things? Well, I must say, on top of that, I, I had, a, I had, I owned for a period of time. I owned QPR Football Club. Yeah. I owned Wasp Rugby Club for eleven years. I had a basketball club as well, and I was running a big business. And I was nuts. I mean, I God knows how I did it, but it was, it was, it was. In hindsight, stupid, but there you go. Um, I, I came out the other end, but it was, it it was really, really difficult and and I should never have tried to take all of that on but I did in terms of the breeding I mean I I just got into it because I fortunately the first filly I bought at a yearling sale turned out to be a group three winner and uh, I I had a huge offer to sell her without knowing really anything about the economics of the business it was just when the mactoom family were, were starting their investment in british racing crime of passion won what was the cherry hinton at newmarket and i didn't know whether to take the offer or not and i didn't take it and and someone said well if you don't take it you'll, you might as well just keep her and breed from her and that's what i did and then uh, not at home but then a a few years later the farm next to my house came up on the market and I bought that and converted into a stud and really it's all gone from there. So I mean I look at all these all these things that you've done across sport and entertainment principally and I wonder to myself why is this the one that has sustained 
so meaningfully? Why has this got such a special place in your in your heart? Well, that's a good uh, that's a good question. I mean, fo- football is very very difficult and very very expensive and very miserable if it's not going incredibly well. So, you know that that speaks for that. In terms of racing, you can. I was said at the time if you if you've got a very good horse and the and the dynamics of the economic situation means that you need to sell that very good horse, you sell it. And whereas in football, if you own a football club like QPR and you've got a very good player and you, and you sell that player, then you're going to get death threats from all the fans. So, you know, there's a big difference there. In, in racing, you can you can control it yourself. If you want to own fewer horses or fewer mares, okay, you own fewer horses and you own fewer mares. I know it's probably not as easy as it sounds, but it's still there. You can do it. You can control it a lot better. And also, being surrounded by the stud, you get to enjoy every single day that you're you're here. So, you know, it's it gives you much more pleasure on on a day in day out basis. We we talk about sliding doors moments in lives careers. Um, was having crime of passion and turning that big offer down uh, your racing equivalent of, of signing Jethro Tull or Prokel Haram? Well, it was a big sliding doors moment, yes. Um, it was because because once I'd turned that offer down and once I'd kept her to breed from, it kind of committed me to the sport. And in fact, to be perfectly honest, uh, my racing up to that time was peripheral uh, i'd had shares in one or two horses but nothing special and if that hadn't happened the way it had happened it's quite possible i would have just ended up like you know buying a share and a yearling or two every year and that would have been the end of it and i would have gone back to the day job and concentrated on that but because it took me off at a tangent into something and and showed me you know what is possible that you can go to the yearling sales and and buy a nice filly and turn up with one that you know becomes very good or later on one that becomes a champion it 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 does kind of get you sort of hooked onto it and had that not happened i might have drifted back off to you know the real world so to speak and and what's been your your biggest regret i mean you talk again from the music perspective of your, your opportunity to sign bowie and not doing so what's been your biggest regret in racing Oh, biggest regret in racing. God, it's hard, you know, it's hard to, to, to have regrets. Uh, I mean, I co-owned Dark Angel and we and sold him to go to stud as a two-year-old and look what he's turned out to be. But, you know, you can't regret that because uh, Gayo Callahan and his team have done a fantastic job with the horse. Uh, what other regrets? I mean, I... Uh, I bred a really nice filly called Sweet Lady that, that won the Vermeer last year, Group 1 race. And um, out of a mare that I bred, out of a mare that I bred, and we sold her uh, for 100,000 euros at Deauville. It was, you know, I put that price on her. She, she got to it. We didn't really want to sell her, but we had the mare. And the mare, the mare High Heel Sneakers, was only 13 or 14 years old. So, you know, that wasn't a problem except about two or three months later high heel sneakers went and died in the paddock so you know that was a regret but then at the time that we made the decision it was a marginal decision and it was a decision we made we didn't know we were going to lose the man if someone had told us we were going to lose the man of course we wouldn't have sold sweet lady but 
you know, you can't really have regrets. It, it's tough. You can't keep them all. And I, I make the point, you can't sign every group you see that you think might make it. And you can't keep every yearling you breed or every or every yearling you see at the sales you can't buy because if you if you did then you would go bust it's as simple as that and and you've experienced the extremes in this game with some of the best horses you've owned or have raced in your colors chrysalium the breeders cup juvenile fillies turf winner who sadly we lost not long after that and, and and wonderful tonight whose career probably hadn't completely reached fruition even though she'd won She'd won Group 1 races, and you now have her, her half-sister heartache tonight. What result do you think has really meant the most? <sighs> Hard to pick one. Uh, I mean, Wonderful tonight was winning her Group 1s during lockdown, so you know, I wasn't there for the two Group 1s. That was a, a great shame. The Breeders' Cup, yes, amazing. Uh, I wasn't there when Culture Vulture won the... Irish, the the French 1000 guineas because that my father had died that morning as I was on my way to the airport to go. That was that was very upsetting. Um, you know, I was very happy when Bungle in the Jungle won the Malcolm at, uh, at Goodwood because he's a homebred out of the Crime of Passion family and. That, that was you know all, that was a really exciting moment. But um, uh, on on the downside, you know, talking of wonderful tonight, the fact that she got injured when she did the day or two or two days before the prep race for the Arc in Paris, uh, as she was about to leave to go to to France, because we really did think that she had an outstanding chance to win the Arc de Triomphe, and the way the ground was on the day and the way the way the race panned out. I think I honestly think that she would have won. She was never beaten on soft ground, and it, the way it turned out, I'm sure she would have won the arc that day. Of course, we'll never know. Maybe the half sister will. Chris, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Okay, Nick, you're very welcome. Well, listen, the sun might not be shining here at Goodwood, but we're going to make it glorious in the way we know how on this podcast. Thanks to Chris Wright there and to all my guests today. Jonathan Harding is still here. Neil Phillips, of course. Mr. Festival is filling up a, what can I be described as a bucket of rosé. It's fine, 10.32 in the morning is more than that. Uh, and Kelly Stevenson's here as well. Um, Kelly, just introduce yourself. I know you are a regular listener to the podcast, but just tell everyone what, what, what you do by day. Hi, Nick. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, so I'm um, the UK brand ambassador for Chateau d'Esclan, the chateau that brings you Whispering Angel amongst our other rosés, and we're very, very lucky to be here today with you. Fantastic. What have you brought us today? So we've brought you three of our rosés, starting with the infamous Whispering Angel, our Whispering Angel 2022 vintage. Get the nose this on is that. The, this Fresh. is the Whispering Angel 2022 fresh raspberry and strawberry we've got a bit of pomegranate some lovely zesty pink grapefruit it's just fresh fruit summer salad in a glass lovely lovely and it's been a a huge marketing success this hasn't it neil and i have talked about this before and i've asked him the question i'm never quite sure whether he's been able to answer it you will definitely be able to answer it why do you think the marketing and branding of this took off as it did because it was pretty unconventional to call a you know a provencal rosé you know something that would appeal to the chattering classes whispering angel 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very simple answer to that question, Nick, in that it's our founder, Sasha Lachine. You have to make wine, you have to sell wine. And absolutely took the world by storm, looked at rosé, looked at where rosé was being sold, looked at the style of rosé that people wanted to drink, and made very good quality rosé at scale by investing like you would in Champagne or Bordeaux, but investing in Provence and really bringing it to the fore, but making it in that lovely, dry style, but all fresh fruit. You don't get any of that confected pear drop that you get with some no. rosé wines. It's just very, very fresh fruits. So he invested in Provence where the fruit's fantastic, bright and voluptuous during those summer months. And then the investment in the winery to absolutely make that wine perfectly when That's it goes, goes through the press. Great explanation. Uh, <laughs> I, don't like, I, don't, I don't like that pear droppy, rather synthetic taste you get with some wines. Um, Jonathan, your <laughs> take on the 2022 vintage... I'd love to say something really profound, but just very nice, very smooth. That'll do. Perfect. And what have we got next, so Kelly? Next up, we've got our Rock Angel. So thank you, I like Neil, this. pouring it perfectly there. Cheers. So Rock Angel, often I describe this as the big sister to Whispering Angel. Or the big sister? Yeah, or often it's described as Whispering Angel just in a leather jacket. Bit more complexity, we're in rocky soils instead of clay soils. So as well as those lovely red fruit berries, once you taste the wine, you get a little bit of citrus coming through as well. And when we're talking wines, the more you, the more flavours you get and the more clusters of fruit, so red berry as well as lemon, lime, some orange, those clusters show complexity, which shows quality in a wine. The more that you get from it, the more intensity on the palate lasting a bit longer, that shows quality and in a wine. And also about food as well with this wine. Oh, Rock Angel is, it's like got that. such yeah, an affinity. Really I remember last sense. year thinking yeah. that was my one of choice. And finally... Well, finally, we've gone a bit crazy today. We've gone Garus. Have you heard of Garus wow. before? So Garus, you, you asked me the, the horse, question Ga- about Garus. how did Maybe it's Angel. not Garus, it's Garus, the Charlie Hill sprinter, yeah. is it? Yeah, Garus. Well, this this really is was the vision. So our founder, Sasha Lachine, we talked about Whispering Angel and the success of marketing that wine. But actually, the vision was to make very fine rosé. Because rosé, 30 years ago, didn't really exist mm. on the finest list you know in lovely places like Goodwood Racecourse you wouldn't get rosé wine so the vision really was Garou's and the reason he invested in the Chateau Chateau d'Esclan the reason we're here today was because the vines were nearly a hundred years old and when you get old vines you can make a very very complex powerful fine fine wine so this is a fine rosé often compared to white burgundy and the way that it's made this is a rosé that sees oak so oak fermentation and aging which people just don't expect with rosé so when you get that on the nose See what you get get there, Nick. Oh, that's a much richer. Mm. Really different flavours coming through. So you're still getting a little bit of red berry. The fruit's still there. Almost a woody. Oak. There's creamy, buttery toast, a little bit of vanillin. There's some smoky sort of soft nutmeg spice coming through. The fruit's changing, a little bit of dried fruit, some sweet Williams pear. Really, really a lot so going on in the really, glass. I mean, you know, it's lovely, Neil, to have somebody on the show who really knows their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lesson for me. <laughs> Sorry, that was below the belt, but it was just Thanks, too mate. good to resist. <laughs> but tell you, <laughs> tell you something about this one. That's outstanding. The, the complexity is fantastic with this wine. And also, you pulled in the... Kelly, it's true to say, just in terms of colour, this is much paler as well, isn't it, in a way? Just You'd never think you could actually enjoy that in a rosé. And what's incredible, something you said earlier, yeah. Neil, is the food pairing ability with this. This I would 
honestly put on a table with, with lamb, with a casserole, with ribeye steak and a rich sauce. You'd never have thought those pairings would be possible with a rosé. That's like drinking a really good Puy Frise, isn't well, it? Well, that's the thing, because actually if you poured this into a black Riedel glass and you said to identify the colour of this wine, some, some of you would say it was white, wouldn't it? I think it's it's blind so, tasting. So it would complex. be very hard mm. to get this as a rosé wine. But it's... How long will this last for? So we're actually drinking the 2020 vintage because that's another really good point that Garus is, is one of the rosé wines that can be aged and it's, which is another what well, would have been 30 years ago an anomaly for rosé to be able to cellar it and age it. Wow, that's but, nice. um, we've been going, the Chateau's been going since 2006. We say this has probably got a really good 10 years but we're actually very excited to see the library samples and see how long it can actually cellar for. You see it? There you go, Jonathan. Jonathan, um, I'm going to dispatch you back now to writing your reports for the rest of your post. Don't do what Lee did at Cheltenham, which is now spill his coffee all over his all over his laptop. I'd be quite happy to sit here all day sipping wine if you'd rather. And that is the beauty of Goodwood, standing, sitting uh, around the paddock here with the sun attempting to poke through. As long as you've got a full glass of rosé, you're fine. Can you give us a tip for, the, for today? I certainly can. So I'm going with Eagles Way in the Chesterfield Cup 250 for Samart Prescott and Luke Morris. On a nice mark, good draw, and you can just see him having a very good chance and being in amongst it at the finish. Shaft of sunshine. Yeah, there is. Now, Here we're going. Is that a sign for my tip? Yes, <laughs> thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Kelly, very much um, for bringing uh, these beautiful wines uh, to us today. And enjoy a fabulous week. Thank you very much. Cheers. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, that was day one of the Qatar Goodwood Festival, which we hope will be glorious in part, even though we were realistic at the beginning of the show. And for all, uh, we might be enjoying wet weather games here this week. We're going to enjoy them in the style that we're accustomed to. It's great to be back. Thanks for being with us. If you do enjoy this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review wherever you consume your pods. And I'll be back to do it all over again from here at Goodwood tomorrow. That's bye from us for now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.